This is Anya Leonard and Alex Barrientos, and you are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. The question at hand is, how do we know what's true? And how do we know what's true? Oh, it's my... <laughs> <laughs> Cute. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it is a big question. I can see how it question. might take somebody off guard a little bit. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> The, the question begins uh, in Plato's Theaetetus, uh, they're trying to come up with a new theory of knowledge or, or at least a sound theory of knowledge. And they go through uh, two or three, I believe. And then uh, Socrates finally reaches what seems to be a good theory of truth, which is namely uh, what's known today as a justified theory belief of truth, which is that you have a belief, uh, the belief is true, but you're also justified in believing it, right? You can give some account of why you believe it. It's so, you know, as opposed to someone who, let's say you and I are traveling somewhere and you say, oh, let's take this left turn and we happen to get to the place, right? You just happened to be right. We wouldn't want to say that you knew where we were going or you knew that that was the right turn or to take. Or did we? <laughs> or did we, yeah. <laughs> right, and, and, and so, so in the same way that if a, if a child accidentally spells a very complicated word right. This is actually the example that Theotetus and Socrates use. We wouldn't want to say that that child knows what that word is or has knowledge of what it means, right? They just got lucky. Uh, in the same way, when we talk about knowledge, we want to say not only that the person happens to be right or what they believe happens to be true, but that they know why it is the case. They can give some type of account. That's the word they use. This is sort um, of like your old math class. Like you don't get points for it unless you show your work. Yeah, exactly right i can just go at you know two plus two i don't know four right okay i got you know let's say i got lucky but what really counts is i can say this is why two plus two equals four and that's what knowledge consists of at least for for plato and socrates now i think we should back up a little bit because we've just delved straight into the like deep philosophical like concepts of knowledge and i think the whole point is to bring it back to how this is applicable today so the idea is, is I brought it up in our, one of our most recent Monday mailbags and asked our readers, how do we know it's true in context to what's happening right now? So you're going straight into like, what is even knowledge? But how do we know it's true in, a, in the world where we have so much information being thrown at us and there's so much happening? And, you know, right now we have this worldwide pandemic occurring. So there's so much information about what is true with regards to this pandemic how do we know what's true right now like in applicable real life way it becomes really difficult uh, even uh, you know i don't want to oversimplify even the account that i gave but even you know plato or socrates account becomes rather difficult almost off the bat uh, even more so when you apply it today like you're saying with all the media outlets that we have telling us different things uh, the different biases that might be associated with certain media out outlets. So it becomes really difficult. And it's really tough to speak of truth with a capital T 
in times like this. And there's been a lot of, you know, in recent uh, philosophy over the past hundred years or so, where that's really, I, I would say that the mainstream in, in, in thought is the idea that there is no truth with the capital T, that what's true is just what's true for you. And I think that at least intuitively, I, I would like to avoid that. And I think most people should want to avoid ending up in that type of, of void of just, oh, whatever's true is what you want it to be. Yeah, um, and I mean, that's got a lot of dangerous implications. A lot of, of dangerous. Everything is just relative. And I, I mean, it, it kind of makes you think of the matrix or something like it's all in our head, you know, <laughs> yeah. nothing actually exists. Like we are a soul defining factor of truth. Yeah. Uh, so we get to be the soul defining. And I get that, how that relates to, to sort of relativism that's so popular today. But why, why do you think that's so problematic? Like, why do we have to avoid relativism? I think it's especially problematic in the first place because we, at least in the US and a lot of other Western countries, we live in, in democracies or democratic republics, whatever you want to call them, you know, representative democracies. Um, and these at the very foundation rely on people being able to have discussions with one another uh, and be able to agree or disagree and know where exactly they agree or disagree on. And when two people can't agree on something being a fact or something being true, it becomes very difficult to have those kind of necessary conversations. And so it Take, taking that further in a time of pandemic, when you already have this issue that democracy needs to have you know, functioning conversations between individuals, now you have a pandemic thrown into the mix and it becomes even more important because if we can't know what is the case or what the facts are about this virus and how dangerous it is or whether we should stay inside or not, it becomes very difficult to see how we can even get out of this together uh, and save the most amount of life possible, get the economy going and all that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's amazing because truth in journalism and truth in media is, um, it's so instrumental and it, it gets it becomes scary if you worry that there's, there's biases or propaganda or, or censorship um, on a little maybe quirky antidote, um, anecdote. Uh, you know the story of why it's called the Spanish flu in 1918? I, I don't know. Okay, so basically this was, uh, the war was happening and the other in Spain happened to be more neutral at the time. And the other countries uh, had heavy censorship of journalism and what was happening in the media. And they didn't want to report the, the, the Spanish, um, with bunny ears quotations, was happening all throughout Europe. But they weren't reporting it in other countries because they were afraid it would bring down the morale with regards to the war. And people would know that a lot of it was being passed around because of the soldiers and such, and that would undermine the war efforts. And, and so the only country that allowed free uh, media was Spain because they weren't really involved. And so that's why it was called the Spanish flu because they were the only ones reporting it. So everybody thought it was just in Spain when it was everywhere. So uh, it just goes to show we now all say the Spanish flu when it has nothing to do specifically with Spain. It has to do with all of Europe. So censorship can have a, a, a huge influence on our here and now, but then even how we construct all of history. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I think that's so important to keep in mind right now, uh, just with how much what we're talking, even the way the dialogue gets shaped and the way that this will be remembered is being shaped as it's happening. Um, yeah, and, news it, outlets, yeah. and it, it's a 
it's an important moment. So it's, what can we as history lovers, classicists and philosophers do to tackle this issue? I definitely think the most important thing would be, and, and this might sound somewhat of a, of a cliche or something, but it, I think it would be helpful to remember Socrates' line that he knew he was wise because he knew that he knew nothing. And that doesn't mean, I, I don't want that to imply that uh, it means that we should abstain from saying that we know things or, or, or end up in relativism because there is that, that worry, but rather that we should know that as, be, as the creatures that we are as human beings, we have our limits to our knowledge, uh, where we get our knowledge is limited and have a lot of issues of, as we've just been talking about. And so we should at least know that when we're talking to other people or when we're reflecting on the things that we think we know, we should think about where those things came from, why we believe it is. Do we have some interest in it being true? And did the person who tell us have some interest in us believing it? Um, yeah. And oh, I was going to say um, maybe, maybe to um, compliment that I was going to read out a, a reader mail from, well, it says SC South. So maybe that's in South Carolina. Or something. Yeah. That's what I want to say. But he, uh, he said something about that, but, that, um, we need to, how do we know what's, what's true? What, what tools do we need to use? And he said, a, a basis in logic steeped with some empiricism and at least some mathematical acumen to include and exclude all scenarios presented to us combined with a system to bolster our own psychology, be it the Stoics or Zen or another. And to those pillars add the sense of, a sense and knowledge of our written histories. So all of our thinking has a foundation in the minds which have already lived through such things. Even though subjective, they bring us the past warnings of what we were all like in the depths of despair and what we are capable when we rise out of the pit. I think that's definitely a part of uh, what we need to be aiming for. I, when I teach uh, logic courses, one of the main issues right off the bat is that people tend to have an issue discerning between a valid argument and a sound argument. And going off of the, the reader response, they're talking about logic. Something that's important to remember is that, you know, an argument can look nice and tight and look, man, that, everything that they're saying just follows. It looks great. The, the premises support the conclusion. Great. That can be, a, a, an argument can look like that and be valid, right? All, all an argument takes for it to be valid is for the conclusion to be supported by the premises. But for an argument to be sound, you have to know if the premises are in fact true. And that's been a huge problem, especially again with social media and just even regular news outlets where arguments are presented in a way that seem really convincing. But the minute you break down what's being used to support it, you realize perhaps that's not everything that should be included or things are being distorted. And yeah, it does become very you have to agree on terms before you even move forward. And, and very few people agree on terms and they like to throw out terms um, willy nilly. And, and if anything, I find immediate uh, in a lot of places, they, they go out of their way to take somebody out of context. They'll try to take a, a sentence isolated, some, something that somebody said 20 years ago and use that as proof of something else, which, so it makes it really tricky when you're not only not agreeing on terms, um, you might not agree on the premise and then people take things out of context. Yeah, definitely. I, and again, to bring in 
Plato's dialogues here. That's almost one of the things that Socrates always goes for in the beginning is what do we mean by this word? Because we're never going to come to some type of agreement if we can't agree on what it is we're talking about. How can we talk, how can we agree on what the nature of piety is if we don't agree on what the term means or what it refers to? Um, and we run into that problem today. Like you said, with the, the, the willy-nilly use of words, fascist, socialist, communist just get thrown, neo-Nazi, whatever. It's pretty much whatever they want to use to use a, ha- a catchy headline. And it has the un- unfortunate effect of that, that thing comes to define what the term means rather than what it might actually mean or yeah, what and- people who describe themselves that way actually believe. Well, and, and I mean, you do see that all the time. People just throwing out terms without any, uh, to be frank, respect to the history that those people evolve. You know, they're like, oh, that person's being like Hitler. And you're like, really? Really? Like, <laughs> are you sure about that? Because that's a, <laughs> I don't know. I don't see like six million graves sitting around anywhere. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe a little bit more sensitivity to that. Um, it, it's interesting, again, the reader mail uh, referenced the Stoics, and that's another one, like today people say Stoicism, they think you don't have any emotion, and they have no idea that, you know, the Stoics is a completely different sort of moral philosophy. Similarly, um, Epicureanism is misrepresented, skepticism is misrepresented, cynicism, like all the basic philosophies have been misconstrued, but I was actually just talking to Donald Robertson, um, today about uh, stoicism and you know we're talking about this idea of something being true outside of ourselves like as it's being represented in the media but we also have to be aware of how our own psychology determines how we view things um, and that's something that's great about stoicism in that it kind of gives you the space to step back and try to look at how you're feeling so that you can see facts maybe more rationally um, because our psychology does determine how we interpret things. And, you know, if we're, if we're angry, we take less risks. If we're fearful, uh, we take, I mean, sorry, the opposite. If, if we're angry, we, we don't take risks. We take risks because we, we underestimate risks. Uh, and if we're fearful, we overestimate risks until we take less. Um, and, and similarly, like if we become angry, we might be more political or, you know, that, that, the, the view in which we see these facts is also highly construed that maybe through certain types of logic and philosophy, we can take a step back and s- separate maybe our emotions and our reactions to what the facts are. Definitely. I think it, when we're trying to think about what we mean when we say what's true or how can we know what's true, I think it's probably a helpful practice to weed out right away what we can't possibly mean by it and i think what you've handed out here and it's super important is that what's true definitely cannot depend on what we want to be true or some depend on some internal state of ours that leads us to want to believe something to be the case but whatever is true at least if we're talking about true with a capital t it has to be something certainly beyond that and so we can at least weed that out right away and i, I think that does help get us away from a lot of, of the relativism worries that we've been discussing. With the Stoics, you know, and, and just to show you that there's no, just because these are people that we revere, they have their own issues, right? There has been plenty of times where you'll see a Stoic misrepresent something about Epicureanism, or you see Cicero misrepresent the Epicureans and the Stoics in the same work, right? And so even these great 
classical philosophers, if they can make those mistakes, just imagine how many mistakes, you know, we can make. And I think it's, again, to really emphasize the, the need for humility and to step back and realize the limits of our own knowledge. It, it's good to reflect on not only what the classics have to teach us, but also some of their, their failures in uh, being true to what they were studying and, and, and uh, kind and, or generous to the people they were criticizing. Yeah, it is. It's a, so basically the, the tool of modern, of, I mean, philosophy, ancient philosophy for modern situations would definitely be helpful. But I guess, uh, and, and being able to at least eliminate one of the factors, our own biases or our own reactions could be handy. But that still doesn't, I guess, allow us to determine what's true externally to ourselves. I mean, I'm... I suppose if we separate our emotions, we're more likely to see something as being false. Yeah, I, I think one, if I had to reflect on a tool that I try to use is I do try to think how often I've been wrong about th something I thought was true or I thought was just a plain fact. There's, I can't count, I mean, I'm only 26 now and I can't even begin to count how many times I've shared something on Facebook or said something to a friend that just totally turned out to not be true. I'm not going to admit how many times that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and I, I always think of, if I'm only 26 and I've made that many mistakes, you know, how many more mistakes will I continue to make as I get older? And that uh, has at least allowed me to, when I'm discussing with other people, uh, especially people that I disagree with, I think, okay, well, I at least think I'm right here. They definitely think that they're right one of us could be wrong. Both of us might be wrong. Let's just try to look at as many facts as we can. And this, of course, takes us to some of the other reader responses that did say we should, you know, try to at least understand what the facts are. And that's not easy either, right? Uh, you end up, when I, if I pull up a CNN article, it's what I'm reading their facts. If you pull up a Fox News article, are those facts? And what, whether we take those things to be facts will depend on again, these internal biases. And so I, I, I do think that, although it, it doesn't get us too far, I think once again, going back to those internal biases at least helps a little. Uh, yeah, but there is yeah. another, the other problem still looms at, even once you get rid of those, trying to say, okay, these are the facts. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and just to say again, back to the personal biases, I actually, I always am more likely to trust somebody who is capable of changing their mind. Because I think when people aren't willing to, and it, it, I think they've even shown that sometimes it, it causes us physical pain to admit that we're wrong. And so, so people go out of their way to never do that. And they'll be stubborn and they'll dig their heels in and they'll stick to a point. And sometimes that can be you know, detrimental. It can be dangerous. And also by just the sheer nature of existence, you think uh, impossible because as you learn more facts and more knowledge, your opinion should change. You know, you almost want to tell people like if you didn't ever change your mind about something in your life, then you never learned anything because mm -hmm. it's inevitable that we should be in a situation eventually where we're forced to change our mind. So that's another, I think, bias that I'm always wary of if people can't change their minds depending on, I mean, we, we use it today as like a gotcha moment. You said this back then and now you said this, but no, it should be the opposite. We're like, great, you're learning. Like, that's it. That's a good thing. But I think you're so right about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've noticed that. Is there that Aristotle quote? I don't, I don't know if it's a real one or not, but it take, it's the mark of an educated mind to accept, to entertain an idea without accepting it. Yeah. I, yeah, I've heard that one too. And I, I also don't know if it's, whether or not it's attributable to him or not, I think it's, it's just such a true saying. And I, you're right, I notice this so much. If, if a politician or some actor or some just famous person just happened to have one opinion at one time and another one now, that's taken as like heresy. You know, we can't trust what they've said because they've changed their mind. And you're right, I think it's actually much more difficult to admit when you were wrong and change your position uh, and be true to it. Now, it, of course, we do want to be wary about people who are opportunists and just changing their opinion to fit the times. But I do see plenty of times where the, the change in opinion seems genuine, and that in itself is still not good enough. Yeah, and, and I think this pandemic is like a perfect example of that, because obviously, the kind of information we've had at different times is just, you know, it's, it, I still, well, I think the only way we're going to know who's right is in like two or three years at minimum. And we'll look back and be like, oh, well, it turns out Sweden had it right. No, it was Taiwan. Oh, no, New yeah. Zealand. They were ahead of it. No, no, actually it was Ecuador or something. I don't know. Probably not Ecuador. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> tragically. Um, but the, yeah. it's, it is, it's, the, I know personally, like I have been, I would, I think I've, advocated all my friends to stay in like right from the get-go and, and now i have friends who like won't leave their house at all i'm like no no you have to you gotta get outside you have to <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking like such a flip-flopper um but it, it's still i think the fact that we don't know what is true and the media is so unreliable and people are getting such strong biases um, from different news sources and we know that individuals are going through this situation and so therefore they're having a hard time separating their own emotions from the knowledge it's resulting in probably a lot more uncertainty about what's happening than ever before and that in and of itself is causing more anxiety and emotions that therefore then color us further so it's I feel like there's a like on mass sort of a downward spiral of trying to figure out what in the world is happening. Yeah. And I think that uncertainty and that downward spiral, again, is just very dangerous for democracies around the world. And I, you know, I can't speak for what other countries are going through right now, but I do know that the polarization and the already, you know, biased media outlets that kind of control what we uh, hear about what's going on in the world make it very difficult to have those type of honest conversations that are so necessary in <clears throat> in democracies and it's concerning and it, you know it's it's definitely not clear how to reach some I, I don't think you or I will be able to come up with one right now if, if Plato and Socrates and Aristotle couldn't come up with a really solid one but it is important to at least try and understand what it means to say that I know something or that something's true or that these are facts about the world. Uh, because if not, we're going to end up in a really sticky situation where people are trying to have conversations with one another. You know, how can you uh, cooperate with people that you can't even agree on basic terms with, or you can't even agree what's going on in the world? Uh, you know, I, I don't see how you can get out of that. And so you end up in this loop where I'm getting information, I don't agree with you, I go back to the source that I got the information on, and I definitely now don't agree with you. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and the I'm other person is doing the same thing. Yeah. And, and so it's just getting, a terrible, vicious cycle. Yeah. Everyone's getting polarized and they're going out of their way to just reinforce their own ideas. And yeah, and it's interesting because the more deeply people get ingrained into an idea, the more they dig themselves into it, the less likely they are to change their ideas. So, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting like psychology of, you know, what, how people get involved with pyramid schemes or how people join cults, you know, you become more and more committed to an idea. It becomes part of your self-identity and, you know, it's, you struggle to then reinvent yourself or ever allow people to see the other side. And, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, the classics isn't actually a, doesn't follow any partisan politics. I mean, it, it's, ancient history it exists whether you are blue or red or right or left um, and and interestingly enough the classics community does span people from all the different spectrums you know you you got super religious christians on one side and then you also have pagans you know you you literally get the, the whole spectrum so it's interesting in our newsletter because uh, we get responses that are very, very different from each other. And recently that sort of resulted in a bit of controversy because of, uh, I try to stay out of it and keep my own ideas separate and just sample whatever other people say. But it seems to be that if one side is represented, the other side just gets furious that, that like to be angry enough that to even read the opinion of somebody else results in, in fury and, and on both sides, doesn't matter, like right, left, whatever. Um, and I'm, you know, maybe I'm tone deaf because I'm outside of America and I'm in El Fin del Mundo, you know, at the end of the world, <laughs> you know, I, I, we got penguins and, you know, dog sleds <laughs> and, you know, or you're just down here and, far far away from it and and so i i sometimes wonder if it's like swearing in another language you you say the words and you know what they mean but you don't know the impact so and anyway, is it is it so painful for people to read somebody else's opinion like is that is that so why does that cause so much anger that is such a good question and i i think you're right i, I you know again i i'm I don't really, especially now I'm not traveling anywhere else. I don't know how things are on the ground in other places, but I can say from here in the U.S., it's very, you know, difficult to one, have the conversation with someone else who you don't agree with without it devolving into just name calling or, you know, whatever you, you know, a very unhelpful dialogue. Uh, but it's a whole other thing and, and even much more difficult for or and so rare to even see one one person on that side say, you know, you might be right about that. Uh, I'll think about it more. And you're right. I think it goes to that that painfulness. I think if for someone to admit that they're wrong about one thing would be for them to have to admit that they could be wrong about a lot of things. And I think that's really not only painful, but really scary to have your whole worldview challenge like that. You know, it's like there's been times where I've gone through, you know, when I'm reading uh, Spinoza, who's one of my favorite early moderns, and then I read John Locke, another one of my favorites, but who has very different views from Spinoza, I do think if I had to give up 
let's say that if I had to give if I had to give up Spinoza, that would be really tough for me because it would actually challenge a lot of other things in Spinoza that I like. If I had to give up his epistemology or something, would I then have to give up his beautiful ethics? And that's scary to think about. And that's I'm I'm just talking about two philosophers I like, not a you know a whole political view that I've structured my life and my family around or my business and all all that. So it becomes very difficult and add into that, you have a, you know, a media that has a lot of interests in ratings and stoking those, those differences between people, you know, to, to admit that you're wrong at that point admits just so much more than that. It makes, I feel like there's a sense of embarrassment or feeling humiliated. Uh, and you see that a lot at uh, this, this idea that, you know, <clears throat> that you're not gonna uh, be hum- I, I can't even think of the word but there's the sense in which you're being laughed at so like if someone posts a comment on facebook or something. yeah instead of putting like an angry react you'll when someone disagrees you'll actually see a lot of laugh reacts people laugh at you and in a sense that's almost more painful than someone being angry at you because at least then you can walk off like oh, i got under their skin but it's even worse to feel like you're a clown yeah. you know <laughs> and that's almost like what dominates the debate this I- this idea that you're uh being humiliated and no one that's a, i think that's really deeply ingrained not to want to feel that and well, so sure. i mean that's like shame and yeah i don't know I, I think i wonder if it would be helpful for people to look at you know that what eh, i don't know we've run an article about this before actually about some tactics from skepticism uh, and helpfulness and, and having helpful tips for, for debate and such. And it's to really try to step in the shoes of the, the opposite side and try to argue it from their side. Uh, and that, that allows you to see it from their perspective. And I think that that would be a really useful tool to both understand your own position, but to then also try to understand the other position. I mean, I think there's it's a worthy ambition to try at least attempt to see it from their perspective. But I think another helpful thing, and I don't know, maybe this is just me having thoughts. <laughs> but I think it would be helpful if people could see the opposition, whatever side they are, is not just a two dimensional character. Like I think everybody, when they're, envisioning you know the the MAGA supporters and the red hats or the the snowflakes from the left or whatever whatever archetypes they're created whatever you know caricatures they they see those people as not real they're dehumanizing them and they're making them these cartoons that they that if they believe this and they must believe x y y y z z you know everything to do with it and I don't know. I mean, personally, I think it's very silly if you believe in one thing to believe in everything else that happens to do with that side. I don't think they're all correlated. Um, Though maybe they know when they say that they're supporting this, that includes all those objects. I don't know. But maybe it would be a helpful tactic to try to somehow not dehumanize the other side and, and to see them as potentially holding some views that you agree with. Yeah, there's a, there's definitely a need for <clears throat> self refle- self reflection, right? When I see, you know, some article that depicts a whole group of people a certain way, you know, I realize almost immediately that 
you know, I, I might be associated in the same way with some group. And I know that I have differences with those people. And I'm an individual with my own reasons for these beliefs. And my beliefs might detract here and there from, from whatever group I'm being associated with. And I think if we can recognize that about ourselves and, and that we wouldn't want to be caricatured or turned into some type of cartoon, then we might be less likely to do that to others. And I think that's so important what you bring up too, again, for the thing uh, that I've been saying about democracy. If, if you just turn the other side into this, you, whether it be evil or some laughable uh, caricature, it, it becomes very difficult to, for you to even want to negotiate with, with people like that. Why would I want to negotiate with evil? Or what, what could people that are that stupid and silly have to say to me? That would be worth listening to. And I think once you do that, you know, you brought up, you know, when you uh, include someone in the mail, some reader response in the mailbag, that's not what some side wants to hear they get really furious. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I, I believe that these people are well-intentioned and, and even probably care about the same things I care about when it comes to democracy. But if you don't want to hear what other people have to say, then it's going to become very difficult to even negotiate them or understand them, negotiate with them or even understand them. And that's really necessary for the very thing that you care about, which is, you know, this you know, democracy, republic, whatever. Yeah. And this, is, and this is reading it in probably like the least confrontational manner, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like, okay, forcing them to watch the other television show or something. It's like uh, 10 sentences in a classics newsletter. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> surely that should be like one of the, the, the easiest ways to maybe have a view of the other side, whichever side you're on without it in the most sort of rational and detached way. Like you're doing it in the context of philosophy, like you're doing it in the very action, the very process of thinking about what it is to think. Yeah. And, and that is what you need to do, I think, to be able to figure out what the truth is, to be able to take a step out of it and, and to think about the process itself. Definitely, and uh, actually this is, uh, you're making me think of Marcus Aurelius here, who you know, he constantly talks about entering, you know, in the, the word they use is the directing mind, right? Going into your, your rational self, right? And he says, you know, constantly reflect on the directing mind, this, you know, this thing that guides you in reasoning and rationality. Uh, but at one point, he also talks about the need to enter into the directing minds of others uh, in order to be able to live peacefully with them. Because if you can't even for a second think, uh, you know, listen to what someone has to say and then go further and go, why do they think that? What, what might lead them to that position? If you can't go that far, it's going to be very difficult for you to live peacefully alongside them. And then again, cultivating that tool, making your mind a fortress, as he puts it, being able to go back into yourself and say what they believe, just listening to those words alone can't possibly harm me unless I let it harm me. Uh, if anything, it, it can actually be a tool for me to better myself, better understand others. Uh, and, and I think that's really helpful. And uh, that, to, yeah, that, that's a great point. And that was going to be the next question I was going to ask is that to bring it back to truth is can we find truth in things that we know are biased that we know are of a different opinion like do, what do we learn by reading the opinion of somebody we disagree like maybe we're not gonna and maybe we think what they're saying is is not truth and maybe it isn't maybe it is i i don't know but do we gain something in the very act of hearing from the other side so you, I think 
and now we're just getting into my own the, my own approach to this, but I, I do think that even when you find out that something, so talking with someone and hearing them say just something totally outlandish that couldn't possibly be true, right? Uh, let's say that they tell you that the moon is made out of cheese, right? We just, we can rule that out. And you might think, well, that's worthless and didn't really contri contribute to knowledge or to truth. But in a way it did, because now you know what the moon isn't. And that's to know something about the moon. Um, and I think, you know, we can apply that to other uh, areas of life, but it's definitely not easy. I think, uh, I think one good way to think about it, and it's the way that I, I typically approach it, is to think about the Socratic dialogues. And so I think what would have happened if when Socrates sat down with Gorgias, he got so offended and was so hurt by what Gorgias had to say about justice that Socrates just got up and left. Well, we wouldn't have this beautiful dialogue where although they don't reach this penultimate um, final and eternal sense of justice and what the good citizen is and, and et cetera, they do reach some really interesting and really valuable conclusions that have in the history of philosophy and in the history of thought taken us further along the way, right? So just to give an example, one of the things that they both come to conclude is that it's uh, better to be harmed than to do it's better to be wronged than to do wrong and while not everyone might agree with that that is actually essentially the golden rule that it's better when you're slapped on the face to give them your coat you know or you don't slap them back it's better to be wrong than to do wrong and that's you know for especially for a lot of people in the west that's a pretty fundamental rule and we might not apply it every day we're not perfect at it but in the history of thought that took us a long way Wait, I thought the and, golden rule was do unto others as they do to you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm taking that and using it for the other example that Jesus right, gives yeah. where he says, if someone, if someone hits you, give them the, the coat off your back. You know? Turn, turn give them the other cheek. Turn the other cheek, yeah. Which is just, you wouldn't want to do wrong to someone else. And even if they do it to you, it's not worth doing it back to them because that's yeah. not what you would want. Well, and, and for anybody listening, as, uh, you know, a lot of the fundamentals of Christianity were born out of Stoicism exactly right and 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 stoics were learning a lot from socrates and from aristotle and and that's and that's how that goes and i think that's beautiful and so when you know on us even though a lot of our disagreements might be on a smaller scale and they might be over facebook and twitter and whatnot uh there's that same development of of thought and reaching closer to some maybe not the ultimate conclusion but to some conclusions that are still valuable in themselves is what dialogue and, and disagreement and, and saying controversial things to each other is all about. And, and it, you don't get there without offending someone sometimes or without saying something that you're not, you, without someone saying something that you're not gonna wanna hear. Yeah. So and it's important process, to keep that in mind. The process itself is the value. Exactly. And yeah. that's, I really think that's the only way that we can think about it because if the idea is that you're trying to get at, and this is where reflecting on the classics also helps, the idea is that you're going to get to some, you're going to discover the ultimate truth of the world. You know, just think about all the people before you who haven't, who were probably far greater minds than you or I, who have got as close as they could and still failed, right? We wouldn't look back as much as I love Seneca and say, he got everything right. He got plenty of stuff wrong. And I, as much as I love Epicurus, he got plenty of stuff wrong. And that's how it goes. And so to think that when I'm debating with someone that I care about or who might be my friend, that because they don't agree with whatever I happen to be saying, that they're evil or I, we can't talk or, or anything like that is, is not only harmful 
for society at large because we need that um, ability to engage with one another. But it becomes harmful for myself because now I'm cutting myself off from some interlocutor who can help me get closer to what might be the case, what might be true. Now, you know, I think we should end this with maybe a little bit of a practical advice, if I may. Um, you wrote a great article the, um, over Thanksgiving on how to debate, uh, according to Marcus Aurelius. Maybe you could give a few tips on how to debate with somebody you don't agree with at all. And yeah, just to say also, I, I took those tips, not just because I read them in Marcus Aurelius, because I do try to apply them. Uh, and one of the ones that I think is most helpful is like we've been saying to not get hurt when someone disagrees with us, uh, to recognize that other people have beliefs for, for what that, for what they seem to think are equally valuable or valid reasons as we hold for our own. I think that's really helpful. And the most important is recognizing that you can be wrong and that it's not bad to be wrong. So again, I, I, I think I, in that piece, I quote a specific passage from Marcus Aurelius where he says something along the lines of the truth never harmed anybody. And so when I'm, when I'm proven wrong, all that means is now I'm close. Let's, uh, you know, taking for granted that I've been proven wrong or something like that, or that I proved someone else wrong. You, he says, you should thank them because now I'm closer to the truth. Thank you for, for proving that I had a, a wrong opinion. Now I can move closer to what's right. And that's what's most important, I think. And I think that those are all good things to keep in mind uh, when we have these conversations, whether they be about science or politics or religion. I think it's important uh, and, and important to bear in mind that these have bigger societal impacts if we can't at least even learn just to hear each other out. Concur. We should just have our, our shared goal, seek the truth. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. If you wish to learn more about classical wisdom, please go to classicalwisdom.com.